amazing that democracy never looked like that when Nancy Pelosi was Speaker of the House. It looks like the chaos that if I decide to not do anything on the weekends, but no one else in my family is capable of loading the dishwasher, usually there's someone to make sure and kind of control that so it doesn't get to like epic proportions. We got to address the suburban women problem because it's real. Welcome to the Suburban Women Problem, a podcast from Red, Wine, and Blue. Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining us. I'm Amanda Weinstein. I'm Rachel Vindman. I'm Jasmine Clark. And this is a Suburban Women Problem. It's pretty obvious the GOP has a Suburban Women Problem, and we're here to talk about it. For the past few episodes, we've been counting down the weeks until the November election. We're at three now, if you're counting with us. And with everything happening in the world right now, it can be hard to feel motivated about an election. But local wins and little victories are the best antidote to the sadness and helplessness we might feel when we're scrolling through our newsfeed right now. In a few minutes, we'll be joined by Jocelyn Benson, Michigan's Secretary of State and all-around amazing woman. We often point to Michigan as an example of the good that can happen when Democrats win elections. So I think it is the perfect week to talk with her. But before we bring on Jocelyn, how are you all doing? I missed you last week. We missed you. We missed you. Yes. A lot is, you know, like, I know it's only been a week, but I feel like a lot has happened in the last week. I don't know how to, I really don't know how to describe it. It's just feels like the world is kind of imploding right now. I don't know. Uh, yeah, that's a great description, I think. <laughs> I know I missed our discussion that we started talking about Israel everything that is going on right now and the heaviness of that. Um, and I know for me, so we went to our synagogue and we had security out there. So we always have extra security measures when something goes on, just in case someone takes this to the extreme mm-hmm. in America, which happened. Yeah. It's been happening and all, all over the place. It's, I just don't understand people. Like, I just don't understand why people are like this and, you know, war is bad enough, but like, why are people taking it to the extreme here in the United States? It just doesn't make sense to me. There's already enough loss of innocent life. There's no reason to take more innocent lives and nor no reason to take more innocent lives anywhere. Mm-hmm. But just having, bringing it here is just heartbreaking that we would see, you know, a six-year-old Palestinian boy in Illinois die because of a landlord and what he feels about Muslims. Like the extremism has real impacts here and it's just heartbreaking. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I haven't slept much in the past week. I'll be honest. It's, it's been, you know, there's just so much weighing heavy on my heart and my mind. And as I said last week, I both lived in Gaza, worked in Gaza, lived in Israel for three years. So I'm very familiar with, um, with this area and with the people and the cultures there. And I've tried to write about it. It's been difficult to write about last week. I, I think I was still processing and I just published something on my Substack. I'm going to be that obnoxious person that always talks about my Substack. You're welcome. <laughs> um, I'm sorry, but I, it, it's this idea of like terrorism. It already like is meant to like scare us. Right. And I mean, it's meant to, it, it affects you know, I mean, over 1300 people were killed in Israel. So obviously, that's like a significant loss of life. But usually, 
I mean, 9-11, we saw a significant loss of life, but the after effects of terrorism are meant to, you know, engender fear and confusion and, you know, all those things that have the cumulative effect of getting into our decision-making cycles. So we're like, should I do this? Should I not do this? You know, and we don't know what to do. But, you know, I think there's another part of it is that because that weighs so heavy on us and it's exhausting. And then we can really like lose our humanity if we're not really keeping it in check. And that that's what happened with this little boy, I think, is just like a total loss of looking at other people as humans. Yeah. Because when Ellie got home, I sent Ellie to school on Friday, even though there was like a global day of jihad um, and totally respect my friends who made the decision to keep their kids home from school. I mean, Ellie's a little older. She's missed a lot of school. So I had to just take all these factors into effect. I mean, into consideration, but you know, I, I hugged her so tightly when she got home from school. And then I just tried not to see, let her see my tears, but I was just, my heart just was went immediately to the mothers of Gaza and Israel. Um, And like, they don't, get that relief, many of them, they'll never have it, or they're not going to have it for a long time. And that's the humanity that we have to keep. And and if it's not our natural instinct, we have to override that and tell our brains, like, we cannot give into this. And, and we already know we are a nation so, so divided. So this shouldn't be a stretch for most of our listeners to see these divisions and how deep they are, you know, because we can witness it like at our local Walmart any day of the week. Yeah, you know, it's it's really tough. Um, you know, here in Georgia, I don't know how unique this is, uh, but it feels very unique. Um, as a state legislator, I'm a part of a caucus that has both uh, Jewish and Palestinian members in the same caucus. So you can imagine how difficult this has been for all of us mm. because, you know, as Democrats, we are a big tent party and we want to consider, you know, the humanity of everyone. And, you know, that seems like an easy thing to do, but when emotions are high and when, you know, things really horrible, scary, tragic terroristic things are happening, you know, it's sometimes very easy for people to kind of decide I'm going to go into my factions. And so uh, what ended up happening here in Georgia was I think that Republicans in our chamber felt like this was an opportunity to kind of capitalize on the fact that we have both Jewish and Palestinian people in the same chamber. And so they put out or they they were planning on putting out this extremely inflammatory um, statement um, starts out good, but then it kind of goes really skews one side and really um, denies the humanity of one side of the conflict. And I think the goal was, you know, we do this and then Democrats have to fight it out or if they won't stand with us, then in campaign season, we get to say they stand with terrorists. Mm -hmm. So what we decided was, you know, they don't speak for us. And we have these two members that we both, we care deeply for both of them. And we want to put out a statement that, that takes into account the experiences and what both of them are dealing with in this moment. 
So we put out a bit of a more, um, I would say, balanced um, statement uh, that recognized the humanity of people in the region in general, uh, while also condemning the terrorism. And in doing that, we did make some people mad, but uh, more people were appreciative. Mm -hmm. Um, We talked about our constituencies. The fact is we represent Jewish, Muslim, Christian, and everything in between. And that needs to be taken into account. We stand against anti-Semitism and we stand against Islamophobia, racism, and all the other things in between. Like that's what our statement was meant to do. And, you know, the truth is to get the Jewish member and the Palestinian member together to work on a statement together, I think is a step in the right direction in recognizing the humanity of each other and the the conflict in general. So mm. I'm proud of us for what we did, uh, but I hate that it basically came down to, we have to do this so we don't get labeled terrorists if we don't say exactly the thing that someone wants us to say, or if we don't alienate one of our caucus members. Oof. I think that's that's important. And I think what you see is a, the dehumanizing leads to tragedies in many different ways. And I think that's something important that you know we've pointed out before on the podcast that when you do things like don't allow people to say gay or attack trans kids, like we should expect more tragedies from this. So I know there was a book flagged in Alabama just because the author's last name had the word gay in it. It got flagged as something that should just be crazy. And that, I know in that library. And we have, again, a host of extremists I know in our school board uh, in Hudson running on the same book banning like just making inflammatory statements, of course, you know, calling people, anyone who doesn't agree with them, pedophiles. And like this inflaming of people does not lead us down a good path. And the extremism is part of this. And you just see it in it, like you would get chaos, you know, begets more chaos. And I think you mm-hmm. see EOP doing that with the chaos around the house speaker, like it's just more chaos. Oh, but no, uh, I'm sorry. Representative Dan Crenshaw of Texas said that's just what democracy looks like. It's amazing that democracy never looked like that when Nancy Pelosi was right. speaker of the house. Like <laughs> or anyone else. Yeah. Like literally like all this time. Like mm-hmm. what in the world? Yeah. It looks like the chaos that if I decide to not do anything on the weekends, but no one else in my family is capable of loading the dishwasher. So the chaos that like sort of evolves when the sink is overflowing, like I mean, yes, it just people live here, but usually there's someone to make sure and kind of control that so it doesn't get to like epic proportions. But they're okay with the entire United States and the world seeing their chaos. They have no problem with it. Um, and they just want to excuse it. I'm like, yeah, it's just because just we live here. It's chaotic and it is unfortunate because there are actual real consequences. So to them, I feel like this is just a big show and it's theatrics and they get to be like, oh, we're doing this and we're doing that. Um, And in the meantime, there's real things happening all around the world that they need to actually be doing real work. Some that they like ostensibly like, uh, you know, support. They keep saying they support Israel, but they cannot, until they elect a speaker, they can't give anything to Israel. Do anything. Anyone else. And they're like, 
oh, well, we're, well, we can't do it because, you know, we're, we have to go through this process. And then in the next breath, they will blame the Democrats. It's just astounding to me. I will never not be shocked by it. What I mean, have you guys seen them say that? Yes. It's almost impressive how everything ends up being our fault. I'm like, we're literally just like sitting over here chilling, waiting on y'all. I mean, we got a speaker. Uh, we just need five of y'all to have a level head about this and realize that we got to get some work done and come on over to our side. And, you know, it'll be a, a year. Hakeem Jeffries will be the speaker and hopefully beyond that. But, you know, at this point, it's not our fault. We we have a person and our entire caucus is behind that person. But it's always our fault. Do you think that will happen? Do you do you guys think that, that we could see a Speaker Jeffries that we could get, we could peel off five Republicans and they would? I wish we could, but they're being threatened, like for mm-hmm. real threatened by like Fox News and other people as like, why are you not Sean Hannity? In line? Can I just say, yeah. <laughs> okay, so for real, this is like the anniversary of Alex, like receiving his subpoena um, somewhere around in here. I have to look up the date. I don't have it memorized, but you know what? Here, here's just a pro tip. You tell whatever your smart speaker is, you tell it to play, won't back down. You start your day off that and you just go and do the right thing and you leave it alone because they are all (laughs) hat and no horse. They're not going to do a darn thing to these people. They'll give empty threats and those are scary. And I agree. And maybe they'll be primaried and they might lose their seat, but isn't it worth it to do the right thing? I mean, I think that's a funny thing because if anything goes wrong, I feel like they blame the Democrats because they know we're the only party that does something. Republicans don't do anything. So if something happens, like it couldn't be their fault because they don't do anything. They're just out there like talking and causing chaos, (laughs) which I mean, I guess that does do something, but they, you know, they wouldn't admit to any of that. Uh, But we also have some fabulous economic news, if I can pivot to the fantastic news that Claudia Golden won the Nobel Prize in Economics, who is the very first solo woman. So other women have won it, you know, as a team with other economists who are men. She is the first person to get it as a solo woman. And her work is especially impressive because she has focused her career in a lot of ways on understanding women in the economy and the importance of our decisions and what we're doing and how the economy is affecting us. And one of her most cited papers actually talks about the pill. So a lot of people don't know, The Economist magazine in 1999 said the pill, the contraceptive pill was the most important innovation of the last century. Like when you think we had like cars, internet, phones, and the economist's like, nope, it's the pill. And Claudia Golden's work showed why this innovation was so important because it allowed women to go to school if they wanted to, become doctors if they wanted to, become lawyers if they wanted to. So now with access to this better reproductive care, now they waited to get married and they chose to have careers, and they also married for love and not because they had to. Uh, And so the work she has done is so important, and I'm so excited that she won. Wait, so let me get this straight. Access to reproductive health care and reproductive choices is good for the economy? Is that what you're saying, Amanda? Like (laughs) the most important. And I think it's interesting, especially after you talk to Heather McGee, is I see more and more like the zero sum minds that people have of like, oh, if it's good for women, it must be bad for someone. Right. And it's like, no, it's (laughs) great for everybody. (laughs) Like, hey, men wouldn't like, so men out there, if you're married, 
the chance that your wife actually loves you is significantly higher today <laughs> than it was a few decades ago because she That's chose right. to marry you out of love and not because she had to. They should be applauding this. <laughs> I know. So, and I'm really excited that they awarded it to her now because, of course, we have Ohio's Issue 1 right now who part of what Issue 1 is doing is guaranteeing access to things like the pill, which we have had Ohio Republicans say, hey, we're coming after the pill. So there's recent conservative groups saying, hey, we're coming after the pill. Yeah. Like the very thing that Claudia Golden says is important for choice, not just choice about our bodies, but choice about our careers, choice about who we marry, choice, like all of the choices, any type of economic freedom, any type of freedom comes down to our choices when it comes to reproduction. And it's so amazing that she got this prize we're talking about all of this, especially right now. So I have to tell everyone a funny story is like Amanda texted us very early on Monday morning. I actually usually wake up very early <laughs> and told us that that Claudia Golden had been awarded the Nobel Prize for economics. And I legit thought that Amanda was like awake, just, you know, how like people in Hollywood wake up like at <laughs> two o'clock in the morning to see who got for Oscars. I thought Amanda woke up to see who was awarded the no, uh, the Nobel Prize for economics, but it turns out she was going on a flight. But anyway, so, but because she texted <laughs> us and I, I read about it through the week because I didn't, I haven't really slept much. So I, I read about it and her work is, it's really easy to read and understand. I mean, I am not an economist. And and so I was kind of surprised that I, you know, no one had really kind of cited it. And, um, you know, ta- I, I, maybe they have, and I haven't seen it, but it seems like something you could kind of casually throw around in a conversation because it's, it's very easy to understand and um, to really see the benefits through her research and the way she presents it is very approachable. So um, I encourage everyone to look at it and, you know, give you some things to talk about with your friends, uh, you know. I'm definitely using it in the legislature. I'm going to be like, by the way, the last uh, Nobel Prize winner in economics, like says that this bill is trash because yes. <laughs> this bill is bad for the economy and y'all love the economy so much. So this is why this is a bad bill. Oh, I love it. When I do it, I will send y'all the clip. Please. So. I was going to say, I'm going to need a clip of this. But this is what, these are the stories we miss when we're so focused on tragedy and war, which we can't really control that in our country. I mean, at least not what's happening now, but when every single thing that really dominates the news is about the chaos that is occurring in Washington, DC. And maybe you guys heard that people just don't have enough bad words to talk about what they think of Congress and, um, you know, same, same dude. Uh, and (laughs) I, but it is really disheartening because I think, you know, we've all talked about this before at a time when we need people to engage in order to save democracy. We also then have to convince people to participate in a process that they find repugnant because no one can go to their jobs and act like this and still keep their jobs. And that, or if you're the owner, you couldn't go and you wouldn't have a successful business if you behaved this way. And everyone knows that, but we pay these people a lot of money to go and and not do their job, not do anything except for the Democrats. And then they do something and they're blamed for, you know, what they do, but they're the only ones actually doing something. So it's a, it's a really sticky wicket. That's what I know you and Rachel. Part of why I love this podcast is that we are talking about real issues that really affect women and families and children and our country. And I think talking about those effects 
is really important of how all of this stuff really matters to us, which I know both of you ladies do all the time. And I think that is a perfect segue to come back. And we are going to have our interview with Jocelyn Benson, who I know is always talking about how in Michigan, the Democratic Party is doing things for real people. As Amanda mentioned, we are now three weeks away from the November election, and Red, Wine & Blue is holding so many exciting events. It's not too late to RSVP for our October 19th evening with best-selling author Angie Thomas, where you can learn about defeating book bans at the ballot box. And next week, we'll be joined by Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer to learn how we as voters can win back our rights. To learn more about these events or our many other events, both virtual and local, Check out our events page by clicking the link in the show notes. Today, we're joined by the incredible Jocelyn Benson. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. It's good to see you all. It's good to see you. So it's election season and you are a voting rights expert. In 2020, you oversaw the most secure election in Michigan's history. So what makes for a free and fair election? Uh, it's A free and fair election is one in which every eligible voter has the ability to participate and do so in the way that is most convenient to them and also have full confidence that the results of the election are an accurate reflection of the will of the people. I love that. Ooh. I need to bottle that up. Very concise definition. I love it. I know. I don't think the Republicans want the will of the people, though. So that's probably an issue sometimes. Well, that's why we're in the battle over the future of our democracy. As our country becomes increasingly progressive, increasingly diverse, an inclusive, vibrant democracy is antithetical to the goals of the Republican Party uh, that is really more rooted in policies only supported by a small minority of citizens. So um, obviously, collaboration and compromise has always got to be part of governance. But at the same time, the will of the people rules the day. And so I'm proud to be in this moment of history, staunchly on the side of just making sure everyone can vote and have their voice heard and the hopes that politicians across the country will ultimately get on board with that concept also. <laughs> so Jocelyn, I'd love to hear more. I'm from, I'm in Georgia, a state legislator in Georgia. So, you know, I feel like we are kind of going in the wrong direction on a lot of things. Um, but I would love to hear more about like, you know, uh, you expanded voting rights in your state. Why is it so important to have easier access yeah. I mean, look, I started my career in Montgomery, Alabama, uh, investigating hate groups and hate crimes throughout the country. And I'm the daughter of two public school teachers, special education teachers. And so through all those experiences, I've seen how important it is to ensure that everyone has a seat at the table. And then living in Alabama, I was really instilled with this deep recognition of the work and the sacrifices that have come before us to ensure that one person, one vote promise in our constitution that really is defines who we are as Americans is a reality for everyone. And so for me, the work we all have to do in this moment is to make sure that those who have power in this country are directly accountable to and beholden to the citizens uh, that they represent. 
And too often throughout our history, that hasn't been the case. And the history of our democracy is kind of a story of the ebb and flow and that that um, push and pull between citizens seeking to be fully empowered uh, and um, people who represent a minority of voices trying to hold on to power that they don't actually rightfully have in a democracy. And so that's also what we're seeing unfold today in many ways. And the great thing is, is, is that while leaders in some states like Georgia may be moving in, in a direction that is, you know, perhaps the wrong direction, the people are in the, squarely on the side of democracy and inclusion and particularly young voters and our, our sort of upcoming generation of voters who have seen what happens when government fails, in particular, when it fails to protect them in schools. Uh, when it fails to give them access to quality education, when it fails to keep them alive when they go to school. And I have great hope of the determination of our youngest voters to ensure that governments of the future and perhaps the post-Trump era of our of our country are far more inclusive and reflective of the will of the people than they have been in years past. So Jocelyn, I'm in Ohio, and we don't often throw compliments to Michigan very often as the state, the state up north. <laughs> but I do have to say, uh, I have talked about the 2022 election in Michigan and all of the great work that has gone on in Michigan. I have to give credit where credit is due that there's been a lot of work to get organized and you had a plan, you've done it, and you've enacted legislation that is helps real people in their lives. Um, so could you tell us more about some of this good legislation that you've all been able to pass and how a little how you got to those wins in 22? Well, there's two two glimmers of hope because I think it, it, it has always been my hope that we in Ohio could work together uh, with current leadership. That's just not possible because you've got to have secretaries of state who are beholden to truth and the law as opposed to hyperbole and lies. But that said, um, in just a few short years in Michigan, we went um, from being at the bottom of a number of turnout lists and other things to really now leading the country in many ways. And the reason why that was able to happen so quickly, where we had very low turnout, and then we had in 2020, the highest turnout election in our state's history, was because of voters. Because in 2018, voters amended our state constitution to expand voting rights, create absentee, no reason absentee voting, uh, which was in particular very important to have in the midst of the pandemic. Voters amended our state constitution to put citizens in charge of drawing their district lines, eliminating in F one fail swoop gerrymandering in our state and drastically changing the makeup of our state legislature and our congressional delegation so that it is balanced and not tilted one way or the other. Uh, and that we have competitive districts around the state, election day registration, automatic voter registration, all implemented by the voters in 2018 transforming our state. As the chief election officer, I was honored to come in on the heels of that election and implement all of those changes. But it's really been a citizen-led effort in our state. And that, to me, suggests, you know, in part because of the, the, the failure of, of your secretary of state and others to try to make it harder for citizens to amend their own constitution over the summer. Now, because of that, citizens have squarely the right in Ohio to do the same thing we've done in Michigan and ensure simply that more people are a part of the process and that citizens, not politicians, are leading the way and defining what democracy looks like. And then unsurprisingly, in 2022, based on the success of 2018, citizens again expanded voting rights in our state, amending our state constitution to implement early voting. 
So we're, um, we've seen democracy transform in our state, not because of any elected official, but because of the citizens demanding that it does. And our whole state is better for it. And, and Ohio can just in a few short years, if citizens decide to, do exactly the same thing. So you're saying there's a chance. And also, did I hear you say automatic voter registration? Yes. So I oversee DMV in Michigan. Love that. Um, yeah, it, it, the, uh, which is the BMV in Ohio, the Bureau of Motor Vehicles. It makes you very popular to oversee the DMV, <laughs> but we actually have reformed it to make it work better for our citizens, eliminating wait times and all the rest. Um, but in addition to that, we were able to quickly implement automatic voter registration once the citizens enacted it in our constitution in 2018. And we did that by simply ensuring every eligible citizen, when they come to get their driver's license or state ID, that they're automatically registered to vote if they're eligible to be registered, unless they opt out. Uh, it has dramatically boosted our registration rolls. Uh, we're not done yet. We've still got more work to do to, in, to ensure young voters are automatically voter, registered to vote. Uh, but it's it's a no-brainer policy. It helps no party. It only helps voters. And like, what rights do we have to register? Like, I don't have to register for my right to free speech. I just get it. It's a right. <laughs> Voting is my right. I am now of age. I am. It should be a right that I don't register. I get it. Well, you know, voter registration was enacted uh, in the after the Civil War as a part of the same package that included poll taxes, literacy oh. tests, felon disenfranchisement laws. It's just like the only one that survived <laughs> until now and has become like, you know, a, a thing that is part of our elections, which is fine. We just have to make sure it's not the barrier to voting that it was originally intended to be when those enacted it in the 1860s. That is actually uh, something I did not realize. I did not know that until just now. I didn't either. This is fascinating. Wow. I, I I feel bad. I've just been sitting here listening to this great conversation and I forgot that I'm supposed to be part of it. Uh, so I in, in 2012, you founded Military Spouses for Michigan. Can you tell me a little bit about or our listeners, I guess, why you founded it and what the organization does? Yeah, you know, it was meant to really uplift and empower the voices of spouses of service members who at that point in 2012 were deeply involved in uh, overseas battles, in particular in Afghanistan. Uh, and as a military spouse myself, I experienced firsthand how isolating that experience can be because your husband is overseas in a war zone. And unless you're living on a base among other spouses, which I wasn't, I was in Michigan, it, it's hard. No one can really understand what that's like. And so I was trying to find other people who were military spouses too in our state and realized there was really no convening entity for us. Uh, the there, there were plenty of academic institutions that were like studying us for depression. And I, <laughs> and I was like, well, I'm not depressed. I just want to like hang out with people like mm -hmm. me. And, uh, and so anyway, so we, we formed it. It was, a, it included, um, Air Force spouses, uh, same sex partners as well as, um, heterosexual partners. And it was really a, a amazing, um, opportunity for us to come together. It's still, uh, around. We, um, you know, I, I, um, and others have kind of handed it off to a generation of spouses whose spouses are currently serving. Uh, but it was an incredible mm -hmm. way to feel empowered because of our experience as military spouses, not mm -hmm. as not disempowered, which oftentimes you feel if you are in an environment where you're experiencing something very visceral and real, waiting for any, at any moment to get a knock at the door and be told that something terrible has happened to your, your, your spouse. 
mm-hmm. bonding over that instead becomes very empowering. And we found ways to uplift each other and ultimately were selected in 2013 to march in the presidential inauguration parade, mm-hmm. representing not just Michigan, but military spouses everywhere. Uh, it was really great. And it it taught us all of the empowering aspect of being a military spouse. Well, I was a military spouse in 2013. So thank you for representing me um, in that. I love that. So Jocelyn, um, not to switch gears too much or pivot too much, but you did mention that um, you used to live in Montgomery and that you uh, earlier in your career researched white supremacists and neo-Nazi organizations. Yeah. Here we are in 2023, and unfortunately, these groups have not stopped being a serious issue. Um, in fact, uh, for whatever weird reason, it almost feels like they're, you know, digging in and gaining ground in, you know, some weird way. So thinking back on that work, was there anything from then that still sticks with you today? And have you seen these groups change at all since then? Yeah, that's a great question. I think the the thing that I've seen change the most is their recognition and amplification from the former president himself. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, when Charlottesville happened several years ago, it it was um, a reminder of the evil that lurks in many communities and amongst extremist elements of our society. Much of which I had been you know studying and and doing undercover work investigating in 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 my younger years. And uh, it's in many ways always been there. There's sometimes this myth feeling that after the civil rights movement, it, you know, it went away, or when you know people stopped marching in the streets and hoods. Although that's that still does also happen. Uh, but when it it's stopped happening with such prevalence that perhaps it was diminishing. And really, what the former president brought to the forefront is this very dark underbelly of our country and our society that still exists and rooted in hate and and oftentimes commits crimes rooted in, in hate as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what also, um, I think in particular over the tragedy of sort of recent, the recent weeks really illuminates is the connectivity of hate uh, to, you know, and disempowerment all across our world from anti-Semitism and the rise of neo-Nazism globally as well, uh, which has been very real uh, in many countries, in addition to our own, uh, connected to the rise and an ongoing amplification of white supremacy and and hatred of Muslims and all the rest. And it, it really underscores the unfinished work that we all have to do to ensure our country still lives up up to its ideals and that we become, as we had the opportunity to be, a truly inclusive democracy that amplifies and recognizes and honors the voice of all communities in our country and ensures everyone's a part of the governing process. That should be the goal. I love that. I love that. I think it's really important to highlight that we're not dealing with anything new. We just, it's, it's much more out in the open, but we also need to see it's, it's, it's here and we have the power and the capability to deal with it. We need to push it back down though. Seriously. Like, like the emboldening, the empowering of such hate is really disheartening. And I would also say when you have states that are also trying their best to not even allow for that uh, ugly history to be taught. Yeah. So that people don't have context and aren't able to to really connect what's happening now to things that have already happened because the things that have already happened we recognize those are bad things that's why those people for so very long were 
in the outskirts or they weren't empowered to be out front because society had said, no, that's bad. But then if you take away that history, then all of a sudden, as they are more bold in their approach, there are also less people who have the historical context to understand that, you know, we've been here before, we stopped this before, we can stop it again. Well, it's interesting working for the Southern Poverty Law Center, you know, the Klan and neo-Nazi organizations and other white supremacist organizations very much have never gone away. They just operated on the fringes. And then when the internet uh, came to the forefront in the 90s, which is when I was starting to investigate them, that became an organizing tool and social media even more so. And then you, then you have a, a, the former president come in and give them, you know, a microphone. And so it's, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's in, in, incumbent upon us to teach the next generation that history because it's directly connected to what's happening in the present. Oh, and such a, an important org you mentioned. So I've worked with the Southern Poverty Law Center on voting rights in Florida, actually. Mm. And also, you know, brings back to how important voting rights are for our democracy and for us to continue on in this country and to get, you know, move in a positive direction and move forward. Right. There's a reason why the Voting Rights Act was the crowning achievement of the civil rights movement. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Schools yep. and integrating workplaces and lunch counters, all of that is critical. But if we don't have the right to vote, we don't have the ability to fight for any of that. Yeah, it's not sustainable. Right. Absolutely. All right, Jocelyn, before we let you go, we'd like to ask our guests some rapid fire questions. Are you ready? I'm ready. So you're a marathon runner and you actually completed the Boston Marathon while you were eight months pregnant. So what's more exhausting, a physical race or a political race? Oh, wow. Um, They're similar in that they're both um, as exhausting as you allow them to be. And if you can funnel that exhaustion into sort of mentally into helping you persevere, uh, then you cross the finish line successfully. So they're very, very similar in that regard. And you learn to pace yourself as well. Exhaustion teaches you how to pace yourself so that you don't overreact to negative things in, on the political side, or if you, you don't push too hard and run too fast early on on the physical side. So it's all a lesson of how to get things done, uh, but at the same time. So I, I find that they feed into to together. And uh, certainly running eight months pregnant was a whole other kind of experience. (laughs) My question is a lot less uh, philosophical, Um, but (laughs) Halloween is coming up. Do you have a memorable Halloween costume that you're still very proud of? Wonder Woman. I was Wonder Woman last year. I love that so much. It was, um, I had my lasso of truth to fight misinformation and love it. Yeah. So that's, that's my favorite. Uh, and, uh, and then also obviously I have a kid. And so, um, the time where we all dress up as the Incredibles. And oh, things like that. I love that. So Jocelyn, uh, I love sports and it sounds like you and I are both sports fans. What's your favorite good natured sports rivalry? Good natured? <laughs> I know I was like, oh, for I as good natured might, as it can be. Yeah. Take out the Ohio State Michigan rivalry. I don't know how good natured it is. I know. I mean, that's like the iconic Michigan Ohio State or Michigan Michigan State, probably Michigan Michigan State, I'm going to say, because there are many ways in which we are aligned as institutions and need, you know, the, the strength of both to succeed. So I would say that's certainly the most good natured rivalry that, but, you know, the, uh, I also went to school in Boston. So, you know, what rivalry is defined by Red Sox Yankees to me. And then, of course, we've got U of M and Ohio State, which was definitive. But again, I can't, I still, I'm still, 
I could not define that as good natured. Sorry. <laughs> that, was a, that was a hard one. <laughs> Last one. What's your favorite comfort food? And I'm also wondering, is there any Michigan comfort foods you really like? Oh, interesting. I mean, macaroni and cheese of all, all types. And it's also my son's favorite food. So we eat it a lot. But that, that and I think lasagna too, or just like anything related to cheese. Yeah. Cheese and carbs. I know. That's because they say cheese and pasta. You can't go wrong there. <laughs> I love that. All right. That is the end of our rapid fire questions and our interview. It has been so amazing talking to you today. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. I hope to see you guys again sometime. Thanks, Jocelyn. So that conversation was amazing. Um, and she is amazing. And, you know, I've seen her speak and, you know, I really love what's going on in Michigan, but to have her here today and like to actually talk to her today, like it just, um, solidifies like everything that I've seen about her. Like, I just, I love the connection, like working at Southern Poverty Law Center, you know, learning about extremism and then going straight into voting rights and seeing the connection between the two and just like, not just talking about the negative, but also showing the power of the citizens to to enact amazing things when they have that power. So I, I loved it. Yeah, I was gonna say she's very hopeful, like even about like, yes. look, here's what's going on. Here's what we need to do. And I was like, oh, this is very hopeful. It's like exactly what I needed today to feel hopeful. Like, look, things aren't perfect. Here's what we can do to improve them. And I was like, yeah, wow. And they have done some amazing things. I've, I felt that way. Ever since I interviewed Alyssa Slotkin, which was like June, early June, um, and another impressive woman from Michigan. And she talked a lot about, you know, that in Michigan, they had a plan and they worked hard and it started the day after the 2016 election. So it took them a long time to realize the results of their hard work. And then also just Alyssa also had so much hope that you know, we still have our vote. So we have power. And I think that's another thing that the chaos is is meant to do is to make us feel hopeless to take that, you know, optimism on the American dream, the, you know, possibility of self governance, all that. It's meant to chip away at our faith in our system. And then we're the ones that are actually causing the problem when we don't vote, you know, it's, it's, they're putting the ideas in our head, but it's, uh, it's the people who don't vote, the people who give up on that opportunity, who forfeit that opportunity, that really, that's what causes the, the, the biggest problem. That is such a good point. All of the chaos and the extremism, it really disempowers everyday people. And that is the goal to disempower yeah, us, to sure. quiet us, mm -hmm. to make sure our voices aren't heard. And it's something that we have to make sure that we push back on and that we feel empowered and that everyday people are empowered, that they have a voice, they have a vote, and it matters. Absolutely. All right. So on that positive note, before we go, we have to share our toast to joy. Rachel, what is your toast to joy this week? My toast to joy this week is also about voting. It is about Poland, who decided they're kind of done with populism. So hopefully the populist government leaves, but they had great turnout at the polls and the polls had great turnout at the polls. I saw and what you did there. <laughs> they decided, they pushed back. They don't want this anymore. It's not working for them. And they used their vote. And this is the country that, you know, I mean, they've had their tangle with authoritarianism, with communism, with being under... Um, 
the sum of other people, but they have decided, no, that is not what they want. That is not the path forward for them. So my toast to joy is to Poland and to democracy surviving there. And I hope that they will have a peaceful transition of power. The world is watching and I'm sure that all democracy loving nations will do everything they can to make sure uh, that there is a peaceful uh, turn of power, change of power in Poland. That is awesome. My Polish grandmother somewhere is like very excited about that right now. So Jasmine, what's your toast to joy? So my toast to joy uh, is to um, a pretty amazing weekend, honestly. So I started my weekend uh, by going um, out and knocking doors uh, for one of our local municipal candidates. So we have elections coming up in November as well, three weeks from now. And uh, the candidate that I knocked doors for, she's amazing. She's got a PhD in microbiology, just like me. Oh. Um, I did not know her before that. Um, And she uh, (laughs) works at CDC um, and she just has a a heart and a mind for bringing people together. Mm -hmm. And so I'm really excited to knock doors for her. And then along with that, uh, we also had a meet and greet at one of my favorite neighbors' houses and got to meet some other people who are like-minded and just want to see our country go in the right direction and our state go in the right direction. And then I got to do a fall festival and fall festivals are just fun. So, you know, all around just an awesome, awesome weekend. And I just... I don't know. It made me joyful. So I'm going to toast to that because, you know, sometimes I have weekends where I'm like, oh, this was exhausting. But this weekend was one of those ones where I just felt filled. I love that. So my husband actually took my kids to a little fall festival. Unfortunately, it was while I was on a plane, so I couldn't go, but looked very fun. So my toast to joy today has to be my mom and dad. So I've been traveling a bit conferences and various things for work. And I could not do any of that without them helping out my family. So I am very thankful to my mom and dad who helped me out so much. Um, As excited as I am about Claudia Golden, right? And the progress Mm -hmm. that we have there, I could not have progressed myself without my mom and dad. So my toast of joy is to mom and dad, Grammy and Poppy. Thank you for helping and stepping in when we need you. It's much appreciated. Oh, I love that. That's a great toast. All right. Thanks so much to everyone for joining us today. We'll see you again next week on another episode of The Suburban Women Problem. The Suburban Women Problem was created by Red, Wine, and Blue. Our producer and editor is Amy Thorstensen. Our project manager is Lindsay Quist. And our editorial assistant is Abigail Martin. For more information about upcoming events and trainings, or to learn more about Red, Wine, and Blue, Follow us on social media or at www.redwine.blue.